this evening, what I want to do <clears throat> is, is I want to start our, our message time here by asking a quick question. You know, just, just share amongst yourselves. No need to shout out. We did that this morning with the kids and survived it, so I don't want to press my luck. Um, instead, but just share amongst yourselves, what is your favorite Christmas movie of all time? Go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves just for a quick moment. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> All right, well, I've heard some Rudolphs, I've heard some White Christmas, lots, how many Elf? All right, good, we got some Elfs. All right, we got to jump into it because somebody yelled it, so Die Hard, yes or no? Okay, all right. <laughs> it's a big conflict right now. I wasn't aware of, but is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? You have a whole list. Frosty the Snowman. I mean, you, just, you could go on just for a long time with Christmas uh, movies. But let me, let me ask you about this one. Have you heard about this one? There is a fella who, who was an upright and moral guy. He was, he was living life on a very ethical way, in a very uh, life that was marked by integrity. He was a good businessman. He was, he was, his family was, was blessed. He had wonderful children. He had great wealth. I mean, and he was well-respected around the entire world. And then one day, one of his servants came running to him and said, Sir, you're not going to believe this. We were out in the field, and all of your farmhands, and all of your oxen, and all of your donkeys have been attacked. And they've either been stolen or killed, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you this. And as that servant was talking, the next one runs in and says, listen, uh, there were sheep and shepherds out in the field, and this fire came out of nowhere and burnt them all up, and I am the only one that's escaped to, to tell you about it. And then another servant comes running in and said, there were, there were the camels out in the field, and these raiders came in, and they stole your camels, and they killed all your servants, and I was the only one to escape. And then while that one was talking... Another servant came in and said, your children, your wonderful children, they're having a party at home and this great wind came up and came out of nowhere and it wiped out the four corners of the house and the house fell down and it killed all of your children. And the man began to weep and mourn and cry out to God, and yet he still didn't sin against God. And then, then it continues, though, because it's not done yet, because then the next day or days, he wakes up one morning, he notices a spot on his arm, and the spots begin to, to grow and to travel around his body, and he figures out that he is covered in boils. The only relief he could get from the boils was to find a pile of ash and try to rub the ash into the boils to take some of the, the pain off, some of the edge off, and get, get um, 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 scraps of broken pottery and scrape the boils because there was nothing that was giving him any relief. And his wife, his wife stood over him and looked at him and said, well, well, okay, now look, you've lost all of your cattle, you've lost all of your camels, you've lost all of your sheep, you have lost all, all of your children, and now you have boils and your health is at risk. Do you still keep your integrity? No. Curse God and die. Merry Christmas. Yeah? Some of you who have been to church before recognize the story. That is the story of the book of Job. Job is not exactly where you would think you would go to in a Christmas Eve service. Our series here at Uniontown over the past few weeks has been called Repeat the Sounding Joy, and the, the reason we've called it that is because I am convinced as I read through Scripture that the Christmas story, though not specifically named in some places, you continue to see its echoes throughout all of Scripture, even in the story of Job. 
See, so, so after his wife, who is definitely a gift to him, tells him to curse God and die, Job has seven or three friends come visit him, and they, they come to see him, and he's in his mourning, and he's, he's still scraping the boils, and these three friends come, and they sit and don't say a word for seven days. And I'm not sure if that makes them good friends or bad friends, but they were completely silent for seven days. Of course, when they started opening their mouth to give you the idea, they were probably better quiet. Because they're telling Job, listen, you need to stop sinning. God won't reject a man who's actually of integrity. God only corrects those people who are being evil, only those people who are sinning against him. So, so you should stop sinning. And Job says, listen, I agree. But I know I'm innocent. I know I've done nothing wrong. So if that's true, I'm innocent. And all of this around me has happened. How can I possibly please God? And in the book of Job, chapter 9, what you find is this. Job actually unpacks a beautiful picture of who God is, a very realistic picture of who he is, and then talks about the tension that exists between him and God. And then he says, I think I know what the solution could possibly be, and maybe you'll recognize the solution. First, let's look at what God, uh, Job says about God. Um, and, and in verse 3 of, of Job chapter 9, it says this, if, if somebody wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? He says, listen, we need to understand, I, I, I cannot please God myself because God is God. God is majestic. God is all wise. He said, if I was to go to court and he was to ask me a thousand questions, I wouldn't even get one right. That's how I feel about Jeopardy. I sat down and tried to actually, in my study notes in the past week, I was writing out the word Jeopardy, and you know what? I can't spell Jeopardy. The red squiggly keeps coming up. It's really frustrating. But Job says, God is so wise, and I am so not, that he could ask me a thousand questions, and I can't even answer one. You go forward to verse 7. He says this. He says, no, if God commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. See, God made all the stars. He made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the constellations out in the southern sky. He performs just, just countless miracles. Job says, let me, let me tell you about who God is, guys. you got to understand this. God is so powerful in his creative ability. He has created literally everything we see. You stand, and I, I don't know what has happened to me in the last year and a half, but I have become infatuated with sunrises and sunsets. Sunsets more so than sunrises because I don't have to get out of bed so early. But, but for some reason, this morning, there was an incredible sunrise. And when you stop and you look at that and you understand that what it says in Scripture is that God created all those things with his fingers. He doesn't even use his whole hand or his arm. Just his fingers. Every constellation you look at was created and is known by and has been named by the Creator God. He, he, he performs countless miracles. You can start diving into these things and you could never come to the end of it because, because let's, let's, let's be honest, every day there is a miracle that happens in one of our lives, right? Every day, in each of our lives. I put my feet on the floor every morning. That is a miracle. Some mornings more than others. How in the world did I stay breathing at night when I was sleeping? It's God's miraculous and perfect design of my body knowing that I could sleep at night because God is still God and I'm not. See, God is God. You continue on, it says this, listen, if I was to consider God, if it's a question of, of strength, I mean, he's the strong one. 
If it's a matter of justice, who dares summon him to court? He says, God is so God. I mean, he is, he's the strong one. I'm not strong. I'm weak. And how in the world could I ever drag him into court and it go well? It's going to go horribly wrong because God is God. Job continues and says, but I am definitely just Job. He says this, though I am innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Though I am blameless, my own mouth would prove me wicked. All right, I'm just going to ask, have you ever personally experienced that? You have been 100% right. You know you're 100% right. But as soon as you open your mouth to defend yourself, I'm there all the time. If I could just keep quiet, it would be okay. And Job says, listen, this is how guilty I am. I could be perfectly in the right, but the moment I open my mouth, sin. It's a huge problem. He says this, if I decided to forget my complaints, if I decided to put away my sad face and just be cheerful all the time, I would still dread all the pain because I know you will not find me innocent, oh God. I could change everything about my externals, but changing the externals doesn't fix the internal. You see that in the old show now, many years ago, the, the Extreme Home Makeover. Many times the, the crew would come in and they would tear apart the house, actually get rid of the entire house and build from scratch. And, and, and almost 85% of the homes that were built by Extreme Makeover have led to bankruptcy on the part of the people who own those homes. There's a lot of different reasons. Tax brackets, being taxed on property taxes that they weren't going to be able to afford, lots of different things. But, but, but suffice it to say this, you can't just change the outside. Let's build a nice house and all your problems will go away. If I would just have an extra $700,000, all my problems would go away. If I just had a car that would, if I just, I, I, well, let's do the Job thing here. If I just act cheerful and happy all the time, then my heart would just follow suit and I will be just the most joyful person in the world. Well, that's not true. You can't change the externals and expect it to change the internal. And Job says, I recognize that. I am Job. (laughs) Even if I were to wash myself with soap and clean my hands with lye, it's a a type of oily detergent, (laughs) God, you would still plunge me into a muddy ditch. My own filthy clothing would hate me. See the desperation in Job's voice? You hear what he's saying? He's like, even, even if I was to continue to go back and take a shower, take a shower, take a shower, take a shower, it wouldn't matter. I still end up dirty at the end of the day. Stupid story. I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. When I was in second grade uh, recess, somehow we ended up with three recesses in one day. My favorite second grade teacher in the world. Three recesses one day. It was spring. All the, the snow was melting in the playground area, so there was big puddles. In the morning, I ended up next to a puddle. Uh, my arch nemesis named Tim Doherty. <coughs> snuck up on me, pushed me in, and splashed into the freezing cold mud puddle, and I was covered. So they sent me to the nurse's office, which I still don't understand, because it wasn't like I was injured, but evidently that's, the nurse does everything. So if you're a school nurse, we thank God for you, okay? So they sent me to the nurse's station, and then I had to call my mom. My mom drove to the school with a new change of clothes, so I changed my clothes, went back to class, recess number two. What does Frank do? Goes back by the puddle again. Guess who shows up? Tim Doherty. Kablash again. It's like, you got to be kidding me. So I go to the nurse's station again, and she's kind of snickering under her breath, I'm sure. They call my mom. My mom brings a new change of clothes. I put that on, go back to class. Third recess. Third time's a charm, right? I'm not going by that puddle. I'm no dummy. Didn't know there was another puddle, and he pushed me into that one. 
So it didn't matter how many times I changed my clothes. The reality was I was still going in the puddle. You hear the tension in Job. God is God. Strong, mighty, majestic, wonderful, pure, righteous. And I am Job. None of those things. Verse 32, he says this, God is not a mortal like I am. So I can't argue with him. I can't take God to trial. If you tried to take God to court, it would be like playing tug of war against the strongest human known to man. Holding onto the rope with everything you got and that big dude gets on the other side and just gives it a tug and all you are left with face first in the dirt with a handful of rope burn and blisters. Well, that's what it would be like to take God to trial. Because God is God and we are not. So what's a guy to do? I mean, think about it. Job was living an upright, ethical life marked by integrity. He had great kids, wonderful wealth. He was successful as defined by literally everybody. Everything was going wonderful. There were no problems in his life. He was living life the way he should be living. What in the world is he supposed to do to please God if even that doesn't work? God, what am I supposed to do? Job thinks a little while and he seems to propose a solution. He says this, if only there was a mediator between us. God, if only there was someone who could bring us together, that the mediator could make God stop punishing me, and I'd no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. What Job knew back then is something that we're discovering even today in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own walks, is this. There must be someone who could go between God and I and stop the punishment. There must be someone who can stand between God and I and make it so that I have full confidence standing before God that he and I are good. Not just that he's appeased, but that God actually likes me. There's got to be something, and I don't know what to do, and Job's situation is amazing. I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to do that? Where does this exist? I don't understand. I've got incredible news for you. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a mediator, a rescuer, and his name is Jesus. See, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we do. We don't just celebrate Christmas songs, Christmas food, and Christmas outfits. We get together and we celebrate the perfect gift of God's son, Jesus Christ, who came to be that mediator for us, who came to be that one who would go between us and God and bring us hope, who would bring us love, who would bring us joy, who would bring us peace. See, that's what we celebrate on Christmas. And so many of us are running around like, like a dog chasing their tail trying to find that peace. And I'm here to tell you, you're not going to find it in anybody else, in any place else. You're only going to find it in the one true rescuer, and his name is Jesus. So tonight, I'm not going to do a high-pitched sale thing or anything like that. I just want to make sure you understand this. To know Jesus, to be found in Jesus, isn't a complicated task. You don't need to crawl anywhere on your knees. You don't need to pray a very specific prayer. You don't need to cross any T's or dot any I's. What you need to do is what the drowning man does when he recognizes the fact that he's in trouble, and it's this. He cries out for a rescue. 
So in this moment, as you're wrestling in your own heart, how can God and I be good? How can I lay my head on the pillow tonight and know that God likes me, that God is satisfied with me? It's understanding that Jesus has actually satisfied God on your behalf. It's understanding that Jesus is who he said he was, the great mediator, the great rescuer who has come so that you might know eternal life. So in the moments when I, when I close, in the moments when I pray, man, if, if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior and you want to, then while I'm praying, in the quietness of your heart, you cry out to him. You cry out to him and ask him to rescue you where you sit at this moment. And if you've done that, or if you've done that in the past, and you just have questions, you just, just want to ask somebody questions, then on your way out, right around the corner there, there's a kiosk area, you can stop, somebody will, will be there, they can hand you a Bible, they can answer your questions for you. We, we want to make sure that you understand this. We want you here for Christmas Eve because it's a wonderful family feel, but we don't want you leaving Christmas Eve without the wonderful gift that is Jesus. So may I close with this. Matthew 1, verse 23 says this, when that baby is born, they will call his name Emmanuel. And that name Emmanuel means this, God is with us. Jesus came to build that bridge between you and the Father. Would you cross it? Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful for these folks who are here tonight. I'm grateful that they made the, not only the effort to be here, but they sacrificed to be here. Now, God, I pray for the hearts and the souls of the ones who are here who may not know Christ as their Savior. God, I ask, I beg, I pray that in the quietness of their hearts, as they sit in these seats, Father, that they would cry out to you for the rescue. Father, that they would cry out to you to save them from their sins. Lord, I thank you that you didn't leave us just in the place where Job was, just flailing about and frustrated that there was no way to please you, but instead you answered our greatest need with the greatest gift possible in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for Emmanuel. I thank you that you showed up. I thank you for the love that you demonstrated to us on that day when Jesus Christ finished it all on his cross. May we love you more and be amazed by grace. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.